Right. And thank God. Dear Lord, thank you very much for this time looking over King David's life and how much um, of his life and the kind of relationships he got himself into and how they were handled are a warning to us and a help to us. We'd ask that you would uh, uh, pull our thoughts like his more toward you. In your son's name, amen. One of the key things we looked at last week was how Saul, knowing good and bad, being told good and bad, agreeing with the good and agreeing with the bad, tended to the bad. He kept on falling off the wrong side of the horse. David, on the other hand, would be tempted similarly, and he would be told he was wrong, and he would realize he was wrong, just like Saul, but his final landing place was always closer to the Lord. He always sought the Lord, or seemed to be seeking the Lord. And that's sort of a, a, one of the aspects tonight I want you to remember. We're in the situation between the death of Saul and um, David's arrival at the kingship of Jerusalem, which is about seven years, seven years later. And that covers 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel 1 through 2 Samuel 6, and then Chronicles about 11 through 16, uh, First Chronicles. Uh, well, most of it in Chronicles is, is uh, repetition. There's a few things I want to point to um, that, that come up because of the Chronicles account. Now, last we saw, Saul was um, defeated by the Philistines at Mount Gilboa, outside of Jezreel, in the north of, the north of uh, uh, Israel. And um, uh, the news comes to David in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. Um, if you remember, David was going to be in that battle on the side of the Philistines. He was, a, he was a mercenary for the Philistines, and Achish, king of Gath, had employed him, and he was up there preparing for the battle of Jezreel, and the rest of the lords of the Philistines said, we don't like this Hebrew here. Middle of the battle, he's going he's gonna to turn on us. Achish didn't think he would, but he bowed to their demands and sent David home with his men. So David goes back to Ziklag, and that's where his whole thing with the Amalekites uh, uh, transpires. Meanwhile, Saul is busy dying. Jonathan is busy dying up at Mount Gilboa. Um, and here in the first part of the first chapter of Second Samuel, Samuel, um, a guy comes from Saul's camp with his clothes rent, verse 2, and earth on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and did obeisance. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle, and many of the people also have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. And David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happen to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning upon his spear, and lo, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw him, and he saw me and called to me. I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and slay me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. And we notice at the end of First Samuel, when Saul first asks his armor bearer to kill him, he's been wounded, he doesn't want to be captured by the Philistines, they would make sport of him, which probably means torture. Um, and... Uh, the um, armor bearer won't do it, Saul falls on his own sword, then the armor bearer kills himself, and it seems that if this story the guy is telling is true, you know, that, that you, a guy may be trying to take credit for something he didn't do, but Saul is lingering and not dying uh, quite so rapidly, and so um, uh, it, he says he didn't look like he was going to live, so I slew him, I took the crown which is on his head and the armlet which is on his arm and I brought them here to my Lord. Now, it seems like that sort of thing has to happen. It happens in Julius Caesar. Uh, it, this sort of behavior was, you know, people killing themselves in, in straits or having their, um, their own men kill them. Um, 
uh, suicide was uh, one honorable way to go out. <clears throat> but David took his clothes and rent them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord, for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I'm the I'm son of a sojourner and an Amalekite. Which is probably given that David had just come back from thumping the Amalekites. I don't know if that's part of the... I mean, people were working for each other all over the place, mercenary-wise. David had been for the Philistines. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, fall upon him. And he smote him so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be upon your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. Now, apart from a very high view of the Lord's anointed, because we saw that in the earlier uh, last lesson where David twice has opportunity to hurt Saul, and he doesn't because he would not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed even though David knew he was the Lord's anointed as well. If ever there was a natural transfer of power, it would seem like the, the, the torch had been passed by God through the prophet Samuel to David, and it had been taken away from Saul by the word of the Lord, and why not? But he has a, as we covered it last week, he has an opinion that that sort of judgment must fall from above, that God must uh, bring about the death of the, uh, of the king. But you, you're also running into it, you run into it throughout these six chapters. David has an almost overwrought set of principles, uh, a standard of honor towards his enemies out of a loyalty to Saul. He had been in Saul's service. He had been serving in the court. He had been a musician for Saul. He had served as a commander of the armies under Saul. And that loyalty that he has to Saul is so pronounced. It's a good thing, but it is, you notice here, he kills the guy who did something out of loyalty to David or wanting to serve David. He comes and does obeisance. He comes and brings the crown. He could have run off with the crown. He, when he comes and brings this to David, he... And this, and this, we'll, we'll run into this through the rest of the life of David. David is, a, his standards, I, I can only say, they're acute. And they're maybe overwrought in what he's, where he places it. He runs, and I don't mean to spoil the, the tale, but he does the same thing with Absalom. Uh, favoring Absalom and Absalom's death all over his own troops who were all risking their lives. And finally his commander, Joab, has to go, you're an idiot. You know, I mean, really has to chew him out. And this is a problem with David. This is not, uh, it's a good but unbalanced good. Uh, his, his reaction here, I have in the small type, this is the psalm he writes for Saul and David from the book of Jasher. It's in the book of Jasher, which we do not have. This and I think one other reference in Joshua of something that was in the book of Jasher. There have been a few frauds that have been out there. I think the Mormons like them. Um, um, but it's a, it's a beautiful psalm, but it has to do, uh, down in verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. Um, he has this, this is the guy that has been hunting him over the landscape for years. Throwing spears at him, He's been trying to talk him out of that, but he finally had to flee to the Philistines because if I didn't leave the country, I'm never going to get any peace of mind from this lunatic. And, but, but his loyalty is, again, huge. Now, it may be because of his relationship with Solomon, uh, Jonathan. It may be because he was married to Saul's daughter, at least at, at initially. Um, there, there, is this, there is this bond that... that and. and and David has taken an oath to Jonathan that he would preserve Saul's descendants, you know, or try to. Um, so I want you to keep that in mind. There is something uh, amiss in David here. Uh, I, I, one of the things you don't want to do, one of the basic rules of biblical um, 
exegesis is you do not tend to make theology from narrative. You don't say, he's one of the good guys, everything he does is good. Um, we find out later that David is not quite as good as he needs to be, so just because it tells us a story, uh, people say, well, it doesn't condemn him here. No, it doesn't. It is a good standard he has, not raising his hand against the Lord's anointed, but it, the cherishing of those loyalties makes him almost disloyal to his own. 2 Samuel 2. After this, David inquired of the Lord. Now this is, this comes up a few times um, in this section. Um, and David had done it in the last period, after Abiathar had fled to him, the priest, uh, after his father, uh, Ahimelech, had been killed by Saul. And uh, Abiathar had brought the ephod, and we think it doesn't actually tell us here, but in the previous instances where he inquired of the Lord in this way, that he called for the ephod to be brought. And we think it wasn't just an ephod, it was essentially a, a shirt. Um, and, um, uh, but the priestly ephods were all, had all the bells and whistles, I guess. They had stuff going on. They had a breastplate, they had shoulder pieces, they were, they were, and some people think that the Urim and the Thummim were kept somehow uh, in the ephod or that the priestly garments conferred or did something for the priest that allowed them to be able to prognosticate and to give answers from the God. Since we don't actually know how the ephod was used, oh, but it seemed to be connected to him getting an answer from the Lord, and we know the same of the Urim and the Thummim, um, we don't, and we don't really know what they were. Um, I think the words they think have to do with light and perfection, but they don't know if they were dice or um, they had a yes-no possibility. They could give a non-answer. Uh, they could give a, I think all the answers they do give are yes answers or no answer. Um, but we don't really know how it worked. It was just presumed on the part of the knowledge of the people this was written for. But this inquiring of the Lord is, is particular. Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. That could be a yes answer. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So God is giving him very explicit directions. Um, it's a, uh, um, it's something that Saul wasn't doing. It wasn't something we read right at the end when Saul no longer can get the prophets to speak to him. Samuel's dead. He he is estranged from God. That's why he goes to the medium at Endor that to get some necromancy done for him so he can get some answers. David keeps going back to the Lord. So for whatever David's acute principles may be, David does have a checkpoint where he comes back and wants to know what the Lord. He is, and this, this is something, as I thought on it, on, um, something we all do. We think that our principles of life are equivalent to God's. You know, that, that my moral standards, what I, how I judge things to be, uh, what I would like to see happen. We, we're Christians and we think that we're pretty on point and God and ourselves are, are sharing the same page. But in many cases, we're not. In many cases, our, our sins, our problems, come from us not actually sharing God's principles, but just presuming too much on our own, on the righteousness of our own. And the, the protection in that is the more I go back to inquire of the Lord, the more I consult with God, the more I hear from Him of what He wants. The more I begin, I'm more able to see what God wants to have happen in our lives. Um, when we were talking at church on Sunday on those, those measures the Lord had in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, we realized sometimes just how far away our <clears throat> judgment of life is from what the Lord would require. Uh, when he says, even the, even the Gentiles do that sort of stuff, why don't you do this? Well, because I don't really want to do that much. Uh, that's we're, We realize that, that our sometimes good principles 
we've allowed, like David's, to fill the whole uh, scene. And uh, the only way we can keep that from becoming detrimental to us is to keep inquiring of the Lord. Um, he goes up to Hebron. Hebron is southwest of Jerusalem. Uh, it is the old Kiriath Arba, the city of Arba. And uh, it was where the giants had been driven out, the ancestors of Goliath, and by Joshua. And um, uh, Hebron accepts uh, David, and they anoint him, verse 4, David, king over the house of Judah. So he's been anointed by Samuel back when he was a teen as king. Uh, that was, you might say, God's, you know, the top-down appointment. People argue, who'd like to argue about political science, that uh, the consent of the governed is always necessary. And they point to something like this. that they, He goes to Hebron, um, and the men of Judah came, and they anoint him. They grant him this. Later on, a few chapters later, th uh, uh, all of Israel uh, anoints David. He gets anointed three times. Samuel, the people of Hebron, and the people of Israel uh, anoint him. Um, so there is a combination. He knows he's supposed to be king, and they now know he's supposed to be king, at least of Judah. You see this aspect of his loyalty, because one of the first things he does, it was the men of Jabez-Gilead who buried Saul. Remember those guys who were valiant men who came across the Jordan out of, um, out of the east, and, and they heard that Saul's body had been hung up at Beth something, Beth Shan, and, uh, um, and so the men of Jabez Gilead went and stole the bodies uh, from the Philistines and brought them back to Jabez Gilead and burned them there and gave them burial rites. And he, David says, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Remember, this is in keeping with Saul's own acute sense of loyalty to the household of Saul. Um, he has found some people that had the same, you might say, overwrought loyalty, or at least a, a strong sense of it, and had expressed it this way. And so that makes a major impression on him. Um, now, meanwhile, this is something a lot of people don't know who... who um, you know, sort of do their Sunday school memorization of the kings. First, they think that Saul was the first king of Israel, and it was really Abimelech, um, son of Gideon, who was the first king of Israel. But we'll watch that for a future trivia thing that, uh, no, it was Abimelech. Um, I won a Christmas tree ornament from Tom Boyd many years ago, defeating my older brother on that question. Bible trivia. So I, I pass that on to you. But he's not, Abimelech's not in the lesson tonight. Ishbosheth is, because they forget that Ishbosheth is king of Israel now. Abner, Saul's cousin, who is commander of Saul's armies, has, has taken the surviving son, Ishbosheth, away to Mahanaim. Now, Mahanaim is across the river, the Jordan, um, up the Jabbok, uh, where Jacob had wrestled the angel. And. Uh, it was where Jacob had seen an army of angels, uh, and he called the place Mahanaim, meaning two camps, or two, two armies. And so uh, it's a, a strong point in the east. And so Abner has taken Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is referred to as uh, Ishi or uh, Eshbaal, other places. And they think he's called Ishbosheth because. The, the Ishi was either uh, Ishvi, excuse me, was either Ish, Ishbael or Eshbael. And when there was a name with the word name Baal in it, you would find that it would be also rendered Bosheth. Um, Mephibosheth was also Merabael. And then he became uh, Mephibosheth, the sh Jonathan's son. Um, because the name Bosheth means shame. And so that as, and it may be a later. Uh, gloss on the text that scribes would do because Baal becomes a very dark uh, god uh, to be involved with and uh, the Lord comments later on that but through one of the prophets that don't call me Baal anymore you can call me my husband but don't call me my Baal and so anybody 
it seems, we don't know this for certain, but it seems that they replaced the name Baal with shame. Um, and so Ishbosheth is that Eshbaal uh, character. Um, made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. So Ishbosheth is king of Israel and he reigns for two years. So it goes Saul, Ishbosheth, co regnaling with David, who's king over Judah. King over Judah, Ishbosheth, king over. And when you think about how short that lasts, you, you get essentially. Uh, Saul, singular king of, uh, then a split civil war, and then a single king in David, single king in Psalm, and then a split again. It does not last uh, uh, very long. Um, at that time, David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah for seven years and six months. Um, So there's immediately a contention. It, Abner brings out, and then you remember the sons of Zariah. Um, Zariah is David's sister. And her sons, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, are, are dudes. Okay, They are pretty much dudes. Um, they always wanted to kill something. And they were pretty good at it from all reports. Um, the sons of Joab goes out with his men to meet Abner with a few of his men, and they meet at Gibeon at a pool, sitting down on opposite sides of the pool. And this is one of the great lines. Abner said to Joab, verse 14, Let the young men arise and play before us. Ain't no play they have in mind. This is like, if you remember the Horatai and the Curiatai of ancient Rome. Um, before Rome was anything spectacular, they were fighting with other city-states. Alba Longa being one, and there were three uh, triplets in both cities, the same age, the Curatai in Alba Longa, the Horatai in Rome, and champion warfare was the, this is in Libby, champion warfare was uh, the matter of the day, and so they put out, like David and Goliath, champions to fight the battle. The three, the triplets from Rome and the triplets from Alba Longa, come out to meet. Well, very quickly, the Curiatai are wounded to varying degrees, but two of the Horatai are killed, leaving one Horatai and three wounded Curiatai. So he runs. And his plan is, depending on how badly they're wounded, they'll catch up to him one at a time. So he kills them one at a time. And he comes back uh, covered in glory, but his sister was engaged to one of the Curiatai. And so he kills her because she's wailing at the, the fence, and then he's brought up in charge. It's sad, but he gets off. They don't, they don't kill him. Um, but that's the sort of thing we have here. You got this pool, and so 12 soldiers from each army come out to meet each other. 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 for the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they all fell down together. <laughs> Suddenly, 24 dead guys on the ground in one quick move. And it's called with the Helkath Hazurim, I guess, the Field of Sword Edges. It's a very uh, a brief moment, but you realize that this is not, one, it's not huge armies at this point. David's been functioning with 600 men. Uh, probably has got a number more now that he's got Hebron. But uh, uh, this is the sort of thing that goes on. Well, the battle starts to go. Um, and the uh, Joab's men uh, trounce the followers of Abner, uh, the followers of Ishbosheth, and start to chase them. It's a rout. Abner's on the run. He's an older guy, staying barely ahead of Asahel. And Asahel, he keeps lanking over his shoulder. He's that close, and he's yelling back at him, why don't you turn aside and kill somebody younger? Why don't you not, I would never, if I have to kill you, I won't be able to look at your brother again, you know. This is going to be bad for our relationship. It's that level of uh, casualness about the war. Azahel doesn't give up. He runs up to Abner. Abner is just too good for him and runs him through with the blunt end of the spear. And it says it came out his back. Um, 
Abner smote him in the belly with the butt of his spear, so the spear came out at his back, and he fell there and died where he was. Now this causes this causes problems because you got these three studly guys who are big soldier fellows, and he's the same sort of moment chasing him across the landscape as the Horatai and the Curiatai, um, and he uh, smites him. Uh, they end up. Uh, enough soldiers from Benjamin and, and Abner collect that they're able to challenge Joab and Abishai who come up um, and finally Joab says okay this is going to be this is going to be a slaughter let's not do this and and they pull out um, that this moment which is not part of David's um, this hangs over David's um, of what we're talking about his loyalties that are too just acute, uh, too acute, too too much principle going on. Um, the Judah lost nineteen men besides Asahel, twenty men. Benjamin lost three hundred and sixty. Wasn't a we might say a fair fair fight. Now it goes on to say it goes into chapter three. There's a civil war going on. Uh, this is it goes for a long time. It says between the house of Saul and the house of David, and like Saul's decline. His followers are in decline. Everything, he got weaker and weaker, and David got stronger and stronger. As we see David start to coalesce his power, David's, you might say, odd principle of honor towards his enemies, uh, he's ruthless, but uh, it also draws people to him. He's, he's, uh, he, he picks up uh, a popularity. That was the problem with Saul, was how popular he got um, by, his, uh, by his deeds. He's expansive, you might say, in his uh, uh, kindnesses to his enemies. And again, doesn't always think of how that's going to affect his friends. Um, so he gets uh, some of his wives pregnant, and he marries some more here at Hebron. It gives a list there. You can um, check out their names. They're in the king list that I gave you, the family tree. Um, Abner, meanwhile, is coming up through the ranks and starting to dominate Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is feeling dominated. Ishbosheth thinks that Ab Abner is sleeping with, and he probably is, Rizpah, Saul's last concubine. Um, and Rizpah will come back up again in another event in future weeks, maybe next week. Um, but it probably is true that Abner has taken her as his own. It was common. Uh, David got Saul's wives. You know, we don't have them listed, but Nathan reveals later on that David was give, God gave David Saul's wives for his embrace. So we know that some of them went to David. It's part of how power transfers what, what women whose women you have. Um, so Ishbosheth challenges Abner, so there's some tension there in the ranks. Abner brings up his loyalties um, and says, all I'm doing is showing loyalty to your house and trying to protect you, and yet you charge me today, verse 8, charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. He's telling this to Ishbosheth. He says, okay, I've had it. You're going to accuse me about a woman, some concubine, and you're going to make a big deal out of that. Okay, I'm going to turn everything over. Since Abner was becoming strong, Ishbosheth is weak. He's able to just say, "No, I'm going to, I'm going to give it all to David." And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So Abner is in the process of switching sides. He sees the handwriting on the wall, and um, and it seems that Ishbosheth has an acquiescence just because he does participate a little bit in the subsequent um, demands. They're trying to erase some peace talks. David says, my standard for having the talks at all is I want my wife back. Saul had married his first wife, Michael, off to some yahoo, and uh, she's been gone for years. You know, um, uh, 
probably, um, I don't know, I'm guessing here, five to five to eight years, something like that. Uh, uh, she's been married to somebody else, and he wants his wife back. And in order to have the talks, Abner has, he says to Ishbosheth, and Ishbosheth cooperates with this. Um, Ishbosheth, verse 15, sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. And it seems like they probably had a tender relationship because her husband went after her, weeping after her all the way, until Abner turns to him and says, go, return. And when someone like Conan the Barbarian, which Abner is more like, um, who can shove butt ends of spears through you, uh, tells you to go home, you go home. A Abner is not related to anybody... He's related to Saul. He's Saul's cousin. Saul's cousin. You'll see up there, son of Ner. Is Ner is Kish's brother and their first cousins. Um, so he then Abner negotiates. He's brought Michael back. Now Michael doesn't play well in much. She, we know her from her teen love of David, and uh, she rescues David at one point, but. Um, um, she doesn't play well in the story, but you have to have some pity on the girl. She's She picked the wrong person to be in love with because her father wanted him dead. She gets married to somebody else. It may have been a good relationship for who knows how many years, enough that her husband is going to miss her. Ex-husband now, I guess. Uh, better than being a widow. Abner was willing to make her a widow. Um, but she, her, her problems that come up later, I just want to you know, point out that, that all has not been great for, for Michael. Um, Abner basically negotiates saying, it's clear that God wants you to have the people. God wants you to rule. Uh, I will make arrangements with the tribes that are under our control to support you in this. And they had a negotiating team of 20 men. And, and it makes the point of saying in verse 21, at the end of it, so David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Okay, the, the, this, this civil war that had gone on a couple of years is coming to a negotiated settlement. Abner is turning over Israel to David. The problem is Abner had killed Asahel. That's the problem because... Um, just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, repeat line, and he had gone in peace. Okay? A couple verses later, it lets you know he'd gone in peace. Did you know he'd gone in peace? No, he'd gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Okay, this is this is this has got you know, the music is I think the violins start to you know and maybe a, a, a martial drum beat and the soundtrack letting you know oh oh something bad's happening um, and something bad does. Joab went to the king and said, "What have you done? Behold!" And Joab's like this. Joab is such a real character. Um, uh, what did, behold, Abner came to you. Why is it you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. This is good advice. What, what do you think? Letting the commanding officer come in and see what's going on around here. He's, he's, he's at war with us. It's a loyal, Joab is loyal, but I think we gather that it's not entirely honest. You know, it's true, but again, like David, sometimes his good sense or his good motives are part and parcel with Joab's way of being. Joab came out of David's presence. He sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to, to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he smote him in the belly so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. It tells you it was to kill him for his brother. Now, you don't see, I mean, this kind of infighting, it's very mafiosa, it's very um, 
uh, honored, honor killings and, and the like. It had to be done in Joab's mind. In his worldview, that was the righteous thing to do. Remember, everyone who's doing things, everyone is, is either trying to convince themselves or has convinced themselves that they are the standard of righteousness in life. That's why people offend you. That's why they annoy you. That's why that because you are the standard of all that is righteous. Joab erred. David erred uh, regarding that. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord. For the blood of Abner, the son of Ner, may it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or is leprous or holds the spindle or is slain by the sword or who, or who lacks bread. He's cursing his nephews. <laughs> so Joab and Abishai, his brother, slew Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel in the battle at Gibeon. Now, you see the internal rot in the thing this is one of the moments that strengthens David's kingship. Remember, we've just had negotiations for peace. Abner and David have worked it out. He's going to turn over the other tribes. He's going to convince them to acclaim David the king. It's all on the table. It's all really, really dicey right now. David just saw that go out the window because somebody wanted revenge or threatened to go out the window. And David has an affection and a loyalty to the household of Saul. Abner is a household of Saul, not only... He's physically related, and he is the commander of their armies. And he was—he had come in peace, repeated three times, and or he had gone out in peace. Uh, this is this is a circumstance where he throws Joab and Abishai over the side, curses them, and then um, having uh, um, having cursed them. He then mourns Abner, down in verse 31. And David said to Joab and all the people who were with him, Rend your clothes and gird on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. He's in the funeral procession of, of Abner himself. They buried Abner at Hebron. The king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. Oh, man. You, you, Joab is David's commander. Now, David's a fighting king, but he, Joab is... You know, a little bit later, Joab becomes... There were the, the structure of the army for, the, for David is... There's David. And then there's the three. And the head of the three is Joab. Then there's the 30. These are all mighty men, guys who have killed hundreds. And Joab, as the top-ranked military guy in David's uh, uh, army, and he persists in being. He follows David through all the way to David's death. He outlives David. And uh, um, he is a good and wise counselor at times, and a realist, a, a cold realist. But... Uh, um, David is, 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 you know, drags him out and starts you know, shoving stuff down his throat about this and all the people wept again over him then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet David David swore saying God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down look at this and all the people took notice of it and it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people David politically is making a smart move. He is saving, you might say, the peace accords. He is saving his... The, and because they say, and said all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to slay Abner, the son of Ner. David manages to absolve himself. Of it. Well, he wasn't guilty. He had, I mean, he, he really wasn't. But, but this way of uniting people where your kindness to your enemies leaves your adherents um, beat up. Now, you say, Joab, was he bad or wrong? I think he was for killing Abner. Uh, it's not an you know, honorable way to do somebody in, but, um, uh, but, we, but we, as we look at the... Um, it certainly wasn't murder. 
This was a military enemy. David didn't bring him up on charges of murder. The king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am this day weak, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, are too hard for me. That's the sons of Zariah, or Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. The late Asahel. Uh, so Abishai and Joab are... David's hanging them out to dry. Still using them as the leaders of his army, but... And he says, the Lord requite the evildoer according to his wickedness. Now this out of the mouth of somebody who later on, the Lord said, "Not you can't build my temple. You know why? You killed too many people. <laughs> You're a violent man. And we sometimes, I don't, I don't necessarily think that David is somehow a, you know, here's the psalmist, the, um, you know, the, the, the tender of little ba lambs, uh, the lover of many women, uh, uh, whatever the uh, view of David you may have, um, he was one cruel person. And I don't mean cruel in the sense that it's a judgment on him. It was a cruel time. He, he, when he was asked for a hundred foreskins of Philistines, he gratuitously kills an extra hundred. You know, it's gratuitous. <laughs> I don't need this, but I'll do it. Uh, he's that sort of uh, person, but we're looking at the progress of his soul as well. He is, he is inquiring of the Lord, and he learns things about God and about himself in the process, where he is chastened by his inquiries. He's not, he does not persist in being the, the, the Saul kind of guy. Everybody is a monster back in those days, in a sense of what you would want to live like. Um, uh, you know, you think of Samuel lopping off the head of Agag when he thought that he was out of harm's way, and all of a sudden, boink, and off came his head. And had so we're not used to this degree of violence, but we're trying to see in David's righteousness how the process of the righteousness, he's a man after the Lord's heart, and, and, and that is, in a sense of what our virtuous process is, our, 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 our pursuit of virtue, is that we're trying to find the mind of the Lord for what we ought to be doing in God's world right now with ourselves. That's, what, that's why the revelation of God in the scriptures, why the guidance of the Holy Spirit, um, and the change in our lives, the forgiveness of sins, are all necessary to clear us so we're, we're clear of those burdens and we're able to make those decisions like David or having inquired of the Lord, or having heard from the Lord, or having stepped in it too many times, we finally back up and go, okay, was I, was I right in this? Um, you may differ with me as to whether David was in the right. It, it does seem, uh, given that we find out later on, Joab and David have an actual argument about this, and David was clearly in the wrong with Absalom, uh, and Joab was clearly in the right. Though Joab had just, you know, offed his son. <laughs> but uh, his practical advice, his political advice was sensible. Well, Ishbosheth in chapter 4 is, uh, hears that Abner has died, and he is um, uh, afeard. Um, the death of Ishbosheth is what happens next. Uh, where am I? Page 1, page 12. Um, it turns out, I, I, I took out a little section on the, the arrival of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is a son of Jonathan who, a few verses in there, uh, uh, tell you how he became lame and where he was. And it just inter, inter, uh, I wanted to save some room so I could get all the text in. So it came out. Um, it's a good name. My mother always liked the name Mephibosheth. Uh, or Malershot or Hashbaz, which was another... Uh, Isaiah's son. Um, it turns out that some of uh, Ishbosheth's uh, soldiers decide, "Oh, we got to. This is going down. Let's uh, make ourselves a good um, inroad into the new king." <coughs> they sneak into Ishbosheth's house while he's lying abed, and they kill him and cut off his head and take it to David. 
and with the, the sort of ta-da, we, we did. David, because they haven't studied him like we have, he's acutely aware of Saul's family being unnecessarily uh, killed and people that do it. And these two guys, and, and David lectures them. Um, when one told me, down verse 10, Behold, Saul is dead, he thought he was bringing good news. I seized him and slew him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have slain a righteous man in his own house upon his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their heads, hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. And that pretty much wipes out generation one under Saul, um, which is why we uh, uh, there are some other sons that that aren't dead yet, but uh, they will be. Um, just not this week, maybe next week. In chapter five, all the, the, this effort of David to stand above the Abner killing, the assassination, he doesn't get rid of Joab or Abishai, but he he. He's Teflon, you know, he's like, uh, you know, that inability, and everybody likes what he does, and oh, look how much he cared for, for Abner, and he did, he really did, and he was really innocent, but um, we're seeing that some of David's intensities are, are uh, not good for the, you might say, the internal workings of his kingdom, but the nation accepts him in early chart part, uh, uh, early five, um, and it says, in times past, verse 2, when Saul was king over us, it was you that led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be a shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So the people are recognizing all the way back, you know, a decade earlier when David is um, uh, being a commander under Saul, he was the one that was leading the people in and out. And that image, you know, you know might tie nicely... Uh, in the narrative of his life, in his shepherd years, he was the shepherd of the people. He took them out to battle and he brought them back in. It was this, they, they, saw, his, they saw his leadership, and so they make covenant with David, and they anoint kings, David king over Israel. He reigned over Judah seven years and six months. Uh, at Hebron and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years, so a total of 40 years and change. Um, the army now grows huge. You know, he's been dealing with first 400, then 600. He was a raiding party, by and large. But now he's got the three, the 30, and the army, which numbers I've added up all the... Chronicles gives you a, a, a rundown of what every tribe sent to him. It comes to 340,000 men. That's not a standing army. That's a, a levy. That's something that they are promising him and saying, okay, we can, this is what we will bring in, 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 when, when times are necessary to do so. Um, and so at this point, now that Israel has accepted him, David is looking around um, for military action. He looks at Jebus, and Jebus is what we call Jerusalem, and uh, Jebus uh, run by the Jebusites, Oddly enough, um, says no. You can't do that. If you, unless you, maybe uh, we'll use our blind people and lame people to fight you off. And David in Chronicle says, okay, whoever takes the city becomes chief of the chief of the army. Joab is the first one in and takes takes the city. See, that's how he becomes the chief of the three. But uh, David wants all the blind and the lame killed as to fulfill the insult that they, in, you know, it's like those French and the Monty Python who um, have all those insults they're throwing down from the castle walls. It, if you get to get inside the city and then, you know, actually act out their insult, well, we'll kill all your blind and lame. And they seem um, uh, to have done that. Verse 10, And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Now, at this point, this is sort of the beginning of David's kingship proper. 
Uh, it's called the City of David now, Jerusalem is, or Jebus. Um, we have a few things I left out of King of Tyre, Hiram, uh, Phoenician king, has a good relationship with David and starts sending him materials. He builds his own palace. Uh, he gets more wives, uh, concubines, and more children. I mentioned those in passing. And, uh, and then a, f a couple of defeats. The only thing, uh, there aren't remarkable defeats of the Philistines, other than it mentions in both cases that David inquired of the Lord and God tells him tactically what to do. Okay, so he follows that instruction of the Lord. Now, he's learning who, um, he's learning who his God is. Now, one of the problems is, and this, this is post the judgeship. The judgeship of Israel um, was this rowdy, Wild West circumstance with judges and no government. Um, uh, the tabernacle was still just a tent of meeting. Uh, it moved around. There was no, and we then got worse and worse and worse. And that's why they asked for a king. So Saul had been king, and now David was now king. It hasn't been that long. The Ark of the Covenant has been captured by the Philistines years before, um, when Eli was priest before the Lord, the guy who had. Samuel as a little boy. So the Philistines have had the Ark of the Covenant, and the story of that back in 1 Samuel 5 and following is interesting because they get hemorrhoids and they get mice and they get, they get all these plagues on them. They're trying to remove, what do we do with this thing? It keeps giving us bad, uh, bad luck. Uh, but that's been going on for a lifetime. It's been gone. The worship of the Jews has been... Um, where do you go? What do you do? What's the, what's the, this is almost like Abraham being called out and he doesn't even know the name of the God he is following. Not until Moses does the name of God get revealed. He said, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not know me by this name. The Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton. So, uh, David is also learning. This happens a few times. Josiah does it, rediscovering the law. Uh, there's this, this interest in knowing who God is. David wants to know. He wants this guidance. Now, so he, stepping outside of himself and tactical operations, he decides he's going to get the ark back. It's been hanging out at uh, Kiriath Jireh, which is uh, maybe 10 miles direct west of Jerusalem, uh, maybe a little northwest. Uh, and uh, they're going to bring the ark back. The, the Philistines didn't want it anymore. They had finally absolved themselves of it by just putting it on a cart, putting a cow in front of it, and just and loading it up with golden hemorrhoids because they made little their offerings. All the cities had to give, um, you know, one golden hemorrhoid for each uh, city, the five lords of the Philistines, and uh, also golden mice because they were a mice plague in all the cities. Any city that had a wall had to contribute. So that, oh, in there with the Ark of the Cup, you know, in there uh, with the uh, Ten Commandments and the Budding Rod of Aaron and the Jar of Manna are golden hemorrhoids and golden mice. Um, when it, it they, they finally gets to a place and, and, and they keep it there, uh, but uh, uh, David goes to get it. Now, this is a lost religious um, sense. We know the story of how it gets there. But it's a it's a debased priesthood. It's um, um, it's a it's a holy artifact. But people aren't like the Nazis and Raiders of the Lost Ark. They don't know what they're dealing with. So David gets thirty thousand of his army, goes down there uh, to uh, uh, Kiriath Jearim and or um, Baal Judah. And he got a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals, maybe even raising their hands, maybe, maybe overhead projector or two. They were, they were going to town on this uh, worship and uh, when they came to the dressing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. 
And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there because he put forth his hand to the ark, and he died there beside the ark of God. Oops. All the wind goes out of your worship. Everybody's thrilled. Everybody's going to do it the way they think they ought to do it. Everybody's going to do the, the thing they think is right. They're going to, you know, and there's nothing wrong with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines. There's not make, anything wrong with making merry as long as you do it the Lord's way. And when you stop doing it the Lord's way, it warned us back in Numbers 4, and when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. Told them. It also tells us that you weren't supposed to carry it this way. Chronicles 15, 1 Chronicles, not Chronicles. So it says Chronicles, that was a demon. Because, this is David speaking later on, I, uh, because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke forth upon us, because we did not care for it in the way that is ordained. David realizes two things. They disobeyed with the cart, and, they, and Uzzah disobeyed. Inadvertently, his family had been taking care of this thing for years, inadvertently, out of real care. I mean, it wasn't so unreasonable. The oxen had stumbled. It might have toppled off. Verse 8, David was angry because the Lord had broken forth upon Uzzah. And that place is called Perizzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Again, all the wind out of his, his worship service. The way he wanted to do it. What's wrong with this picture? Why could this happen? He's angry with God, he's afraid of his God, and he becomes distant from his God. He doesn't want the ark anymore. Because it didn't happen the way David, using his own best lights, thought it should happen. So they leave it at this house of Obed-Edom. And God blesses the house of Obed-Edom for three months. Well, it was told the king, verse 12, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom, all that belonged to him, because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. There is a... Finally David goes, okay, it's not a bad thing. We did a bad thing. That quote from Chronicles is David speaking when he's giving instructions about, okay, we've got to do it right this time. And they do this time. It says, uh, and when those who bore the ark, that means they were carrying it, Levites were carrying it on poles like they had been told. When the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, this is ten miles, six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling every six. It's a long, it's a lot of dead animals. I always think, no refrigeration. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with the sound of the horn. Um, he has to move himself, and we all do. As we learn, we are less and less. The, the, un, the ungodly are their own gods, their own guides, their own moral standard setters. They, they think they can get away with it because there's all these times when it overlaps with everybody else and they create a decent civil society. Christians learn that none of what we claim is ours. We must only claim the Lord's. And so we have got to be converted from our sins and learn by inquiring of the Lord. And for moments like this, where we do it the wrong way, and we don't wonder why it blew up in our faces, um, the, David has the quality of, unlike Saul, of improving. He doesn't become more mad and more wiped out and more rebellious. He has these moments of anger and killing countless thousands. Uh, he has these moments of... but. He goes back on himself. He doesn't think it was God's fault anymore. But Michael, his wife, has a different view from the window. 
The ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And again, real mercy for that woman. But uh, she came, not only was she in love with him, handed off to somebody else, maybe fell in love with her new husband, then dragged off to a harem, well-stocked harem by now. Remember, we've been adding wives every so often. And she doesn't have any kids. We don't know if David just wanted her back for his honor. Um, uh, what their relationship was like. She had all sorts of human reasons to be annoyed. She's making measure of this from her vantage point. And from her vantage point, her husband's making a big fool of himself. We don't know if the ephod was too short or transparent or whatever. But she seems to think after it all comes into the city and he all settles everything out and gives gifts to everybody and he returns to his household, verse 20, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today. Doesn't that sound like a wife? This, this must be true. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. You were like a flasher, David, is what you're saying. You were... You were you were prancing about with your, you know, with all of you on display, just like some pervert. And not only that, but your servants, slaves, girls, saw your private parts. How you have honored yourself today. Now, she is making, you know, her love for David had been horizontal. It was about who David was. It wasn't about who she was before the Lord and, and her recognizing that in David. David was a stud. David was a soldier. David was victorious. He killed the giant. Um, everybody loved him and I get to be in love with him and I get to marry him. Um, and a lot of uh, when it's horizontal like that and it's all romantic love, it becomes easy to undercut by one dishonorable moment because a woman's love will echo at least, if not be synonymous with, her sense of honor for her husband. And she, and she obviously thinks this is, and David says to Michael, it was before the Lord. They're having a, they're having a marital fight here. It's, it's a little awkward to go through, but he says, who chose me above your father? Ow! E! It may be, because of that, because she was no longer the princess of the king. Now she was the daughter of the rejected, everything rejected. And now the bottom of the feeding pool in the harem and all sorts of the loss of standing. And David, and above all his house, to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make Mary before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the maids of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. You can decide for yourself whether that conversation is, you might say, is David speaking the word of the Lord? David is speaking, they're being told what historically happened. We also know that his position, Michael is being left behind in this. God seems to uphold it. And it says, then Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. That's sort of like, okay, that's where the, the where your stint right may not have uh, may not have slept uh, with him. And but that was a sense of measure for women in those days. Was I participating in the family? And given that the house of the king, the house of David, the first wife would have had, if she had a son, it would have been of some substance, she's denied all that. Um, this is Michael, the daughter of Saul, bottoming out, just like we saw Saul bottom out last week. It's, it's hidden. It, and, and David is, um, he knows that in him getting right, he had just been angry with the Lord. He had just been afraid of the Lord. He had just stepped away from having the Ark of the Covenant back at all because of that. And then he gets corrected 
in his attitudes. He gets corrected in what the blessing of the ark is and, and, and uh, what ought to have been done and we hadn't done it. We had disobeyed. We did not care for it in the way it was ordained. He admits that he was in the wrong and his new obedience, you might say, his new, his, the path to the Lord is one of great joy for him. And the figuring this out, he's out in front of the Lord in his jockey shorts, dancing. Now, he's not an old guy. He's not like old king, you know, in very little. He's like 30, 37, you know, and a soldier. He's probably pretty ripped. So, you know, it's not, it's not that kind of embarrassment. Uh, I wouldn't want to get out there in an ephod and uh, shake it. So, but don't picture that. Picture, a, you know, a right a middle-aged guy doing just fine. But he's willing to be even more contemptible to those who don't see this joy. Some people will see it. The maids that you think so little of, they will hold me in honor. You won't. And we have to realize that as we... One of the things we need to grow in grace regarding is as we move on in a knowledge of the Lord, we will sometimes be stepping into areas that that we're not getting roundly protected by everybody around us in our church, you know, in our circumstance. We're going into an area where we're just going to be growing in some sort of grace that um, nobody show up at my church dancing in an ephod, okay? But I, this is not what I... I will despise you from the window, but I will never bear children. Uh, but people won't always see. When Blessed became a Christian her, and wanted to be baptized, her mother associated it with, you were in Job's daughters once and you grew out of that. What's, you know, it was, people don't understand people moving to a deeper walk. David is constantly learning more about his God. He is constantly growing, and he wants to spend more time. The Women's Bible says he's going through Psalm 119, where David's meditating on the law of the Lord. His desire is to be in the presence of God all the time. He makes mistakes, but to the degree he does inquire, he fixes them. To the degree he doesn't, he makes them. And that's where we need to be. We inquire of the Lord. We're trying to find what is virtue in my life. What does God want me to do? And, and sometimes you're going to do it alone. And sometimes someone you care deeply about might not see it your way. But you serve the Lord. Well, that is the end of our little over an hour. I apologize. But uh, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're thankful once again for the greatness of David's life. It's exciting. Uh, should be a movie, Lord. We're we're, we're very uh, blessed to see it happen. We'd ask that you would pull out for us those victories of David, not just military ones, but those of his heart, where he learns to be more like you and learns to be chastened by you. Apply them to ourselves in your Son's name. Amen.